Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. It feels like we just closed the books on government funding for fiscal 2019, but it's time now to start talking about the budget for 2020. The president's annual budget request has arrived on Capitol Hill, kicking off what's sure to be yet another contentious process. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. Later in this episode, we'll look at some of the bills the House is scheduled to take up this week. First up, though, the budget request, which is proposing major cuts in domestic spending and a boost to defense. We're happy to welcome BGov budget and appropriations reporter Jack Fitzpatrick and legislative analyst team lead Adam Shank back to the show now to dive into the budget and what comes next. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Adam, what is the importance of the annual budget request? Well, the big thing with the budget request is that it marks the first step of the sort of spending process for a fiscal year, and it really lays down a marker from the White House and the administration as to sort of what their priorities are. And the one thing to to keep in mind about this is that this week we're only getting part of the budget request. We're not getting any of this sort of agency-specific, what they call appendices, where each agency has a a, essentially like a large book where they detail their spending changes at the program level. And so without that, it's sort of hard to kind of gauge some of the finer details of what this request will entail. But as you alluded to in the intro, we know that there's going to be a number of proposals to to reduce spending on the discretionary side and as well to increase on the defense side. But the main thing is that this is the first step in that process and it will sort of start the debate over spending for this fiscal year. Jack, give us the broad strokes. What are the the big takeaways so far? I think there are two big takeaways from this, uh, at least at, at first glance. One is the suggestion for very, very steep non-defense spending cuts. That's important even though it's unrealistic and this uh, budget really is dead on arrival on Capitol Hill. It's important because lawmakers and the White House need to agree to a a deal to raise budget caps under the Budget Control Act in order to avoid about a 10% cut, defense and non-defense, from fiscal 19 to 20. Now, that would serve as kind of a framework for the appropriations process if they could do it early. The call, though, for really, really tough spending cuts on the non-defense side shows that Trump and congressional lawmakers in both parties really aren't on the same page. The other big takeaway is this call for $8.6 billion for border fencing, which is even more than Trump wants to get in fiscal 19, including the emergency declaration money, including Department of Defense funds that he wants to reprogram. So that's a very, very aggressive request for border security that congressional Democrats, including Pelosi and Schumer, have already said is, is going nowhere on the Hill. So it's it's a very, very Trump-esque request that is not going over well with the Democrats in particular. So looping back to what you were talking about, Adam, you know, with an opening offer like this that Democrats will reject out of hand, how much influence over the spending debate does this actually have? So that's a really good question. And I, I think it's definitely a debatable answer. Some people would argue that it really has sort of little impact on the actual process. As Jack said, you know, Congress, or at least the House Democrats are going to reject the vast, vast majority of this proposal out of hand. But without seeing the sort of finer details in, in the agency books, we don't know sort of what some of the trade-offs the administration might be willing to make. We know that people will look at the economic assumptions. And one thing about the budget is that it will sort of project 
project out what they think GDP growth is going to be for the next 10 years, how the deficit is going to grow or, or get reined in. And, and I believe this budget proposal would, would close the deficit within 15 years as opposed to 10 years as we've seen in previous budgets. But the thing is that with those smaller details, you can start to see sort of, you know, where the negotiations will happen. And, and a big thing here with the spending caps that Jack spoke about is that without increasing them, I believe that the 10% cut is about $126 billion, give or take here. So, you know, that is a huge amount of money. And one thing to keep in mind is that in previous years during the appropriations process, we've seen Congress really struggle to, to make cuts that they've talked talked about for for you know years where they tried to cut a grant program in the housing and urban development department and the bill then sort of imploded on the floor this was several years ago and you know they they realized that you know it's one thing to talk about a cut it's another thing to completely eliminate funding for certain programs or, or, or severely reduce them so it, it is a very interesting question and it, it's not that it has no influence on it right because it shows the administration's negotiating position but on the other hand when it comes to Congress crafting spending bills and, and Jack I'm sure you have thoughts on this but they're going to do what they're going to do and they'll kind of try to pay heed a little bit to the administration but honestly they they'll you know they're going to do their thing it's it's particularly interesting now that we have a divided congress democrats in control of the house who obviously will totally ignore this but then senate republicans who usually take a pretty bipartisan path on appropriations are they going to just ignore this and and use top line numbers on their spending bills that are actually an increase or does richard shelby sort of in the early stages follow directions from the white house that's going to be a tough call for Senate Republicans if they completely ignore this or this influences them to take a more austere approach to non-defense spending. We often hear it said that the budget is a more of a visioning exercise or a moral document, and maybe that's the where, where its actual influence comes, just kind of laying the marker for the White House. This is where we stand, and then Congress will do what, what they want. Yeah, it's a, an opening sort of uh, negotiating position from the White House, which, as I mentioned, is, is important when it comes to the budget request. It's important when it comes to the most controversial portions of the spending debate. So it's it's not a great sign for what happens at the end of September when you look at the, the request for the border wall. It's, it's kind of a, a signal from the White House that Trump is not caving, even though really for the most part he, he lost the fight over some of those tough issues for fiscal 19. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add there of the, the other issues that we, we have right now is the plus up here to the overseas contingency operations funding on the defense side of the ledger. And essentially what that does is it allows those dollars to count outside of the spending cap. So that's sort of how they're in this proposal getting around the cap by a pretty significant amount. And Speaker Pelosi has come in and said this is absolutely not happening. And, and it's one of those things that we've seen a tussle over in the last several years where under President George W. Bush, they used OCO funding, obviously, to fund the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it, and it allowed Congress to kind of get around some of those issues where there were emergencies and there was actual, you know, war operations, not that there aren't still, but at a, at a much more significant scale. And when President Obama came in, they, they put some of that money back onto the books. And now this is sort of swinging the pendulum back the other way. And that's going to be a really big fight, not only because the House Democrats will, you know, essentially refuse, but that, again, it, it puts the, the Senate Republicans in a sort of difficult position as to whether or not they'll accept that extra money there. You guys have mentioned the spending cap debate that's going to be coming down for, for fiscal 2020. There's also the debt limit, which has snapped back into effect through some uh, extraordinary measures the Treasury Department calls them. It's not going to really have an effect probably until the end of the fiscal year, just to put another thing at the end of September. Is there any forecast for addressing the spending caps or the, the debt limit at this point? It's already a, a major topic of conversation on the Hill. The question is, do they want to 
to do both of those at the same time or not. We've kind of gotten mixed messages from congressional leadership and the lawmakers I've talked to. There are a lot of members who would like to just do a package deal as early as possible on the debt limit and budget caps, but we haven't gotten a clear answer on that. And I think part of the equation is, especially from conservatives, do they push for something else to be tied to either one of those and use the use that deadline as leverage. I know Mike Enzi, the budget chairman in the Senate, said that he wants some sort of budget reform to be tied to any increase of the budget caps. You could see any anything fiscally conservative tied to either one of these if conservatives can kind of unite and make that push. But I think from people who really, really want to see both of them done, there are a lot of members who just want to see both of those tied together and passed as early as possible. Thanks, Jack and Adam. If you're interested in learning more about the details of the budget request, join us for our rapid response webinar Tuesday, March 12th at 2 p.m. Find more information at about.bgov.com events. We'll be right back to preview this week in the House of Representatives. The House is slated to take up a baker's dozen of non-controversial measures this week under the procedure this podcast is named for, suspension of the rules. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. This week, the theme is transparency. There's also one measure that will go through the Rules Committee, a resolution calling for the public release of special counsel Robert Mueller's report when his investigation into the Trump campaign is completed. Legislative analysts Michael Smallberg and Noreen Chowdhury join us now to give us a few of the other highlights. Welcome. Hello. There's a reason for the transparency theme. I'm told, Michael, it is sunshine week. That's not about daylight saving, though, is it? That's right, Adam. In addition to uh, the literal sunlight we're seeing this week, this is sunshine week, which is a time when lawmakers and media organizations, open government groups across the country focus on government transparency and expanding the public's access to information. So lawmakers will often vote on uh, government transparency bills, and this year is no exception. We have, for example, a bill dealing with electric electronic storage of emails and other electronic records. At some agencies, people are still literally printing out their emails to to archive them. So this bill would require the National Archives to update its electronic record keeping requirements uh, for federal agencies and for the White House. Another bill deals with federal advisory committees. These are panels of outside experts and stakeholders who come advise federal agencies on everything from um, national security to trade. There are some concerns that these groups get around transparency requirements sometimes when they're filled with contractors or subcommittees. So this bill would require more transparency around those advisory panels, making sure in some cases that experts who are supposed to be providing independent advice are providing um, conflict of interest disclosures. So looking at the rules committee bill that we mentioned about the Mueller report, that also sort of gets at the theme of transparency. Adam, you've been covering that. What's happening with it? Yeah, so rumors and reports for, for weeks have been heating up now that Robert Mueller could be wrapping up his investigation really soon, possibly any time now. It seems like for weeks we've been hearing it could come out this week, his report. Justice Department regulations require the special counsel to report to the attorney general with explanations of any big prosecutorial decisions, but it's up to the AG whether to send it to Congress and whether to publish it once it's been submitted. And new attorney general William Barr hasn't committed one way or the other. Obviously, President Trump has called the investigation a witch hunt and has opposed the whole thing. In that light, House Democrats introduced a concurrent 
concurrent resolution, which is non-binding and doesn't require the signature of the president, but it does have to go to both houses of Congress. And this resolution would say that the report should be sent to Congress in full, and it should be released to the public with redactions only where legally required. So it's a little bit of a, a messaging bill because it's unlikely to go anywhere in the Senate. That said, it could. We could be surprised and it could go somewhere in the Senate, but that's up this week in the House. Michael, there's also a group of bills focusing on financial institutions and transparency in the regulation of that industry. What's on tap there? There are a few bills uh, dealing with illicit financing, uh, like money laundering and, and terrorism financing. One bill would require um, FinCEN, that's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, part of the Treasury Department, would require um, that agency to coordinate more with foreign agencies, looking at specifically the use of, of Bitcoin and, and other virtual currencies, you know, as part of money laundering or other illicit activities. Another bill would deal with what are called keep open letters. These are letters that the FBI, Homeland Security Department, other agencies can send to banks where they tell the bank, hey, we need you to keep this customer account open so that we can track potential illegal activity there. And the problem is that some banks say that they could still get in trouble with financial regulators because they aren't shutting down those suspicious accounts. So this bill would ensure that banks um, are not subject to penalties if they're complying with one of those keep open letter requests. Noreen, some of these bills actually turn the notion of transparency away from the U.S. and specifically toward Russia. What's happening? Right. So uh, there are three bills this week that are focused on Russian transparency. The first one would um, direct the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, to submit a report on the net worth and assets of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Reports from the Russian government have said that Putin's average annual income between 2011 and 2016 to be around 112000 but According to the bill's findings, outside experts have alleged that his true net worth is in the billions and that they believe it suggests to his extensive corruption and links to money laundering. The next bill would uh, direct the DNI to provide Congress with intelligence assessments on possible Russian military action against NATO members, including U.S. presence in uh, Ukraine and Georgia. And the last measure would prohibit federal agencies from taking any action that recognizes Russians' sovereignty over Crimea. The present could waive those prohibitions. And we've seen similar provisions in the fiscal 2019 National Defense Authorization and the state and foreign operations section of the fiscal 2019 spending omnibus. Thanks, everyone. Find all the legislative analyst team's work at bgov.com. That does it for this week. We'll talk to you again on our next episode. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Enzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.